you don't need to be that clever in a way about your ideas to make breakthrough because no one has been there. So there is everything to do. Is there anybody out there? The thought-provoking possibility of life on other planets has been tackled in many a science fiction story. But the science world has had trouble in rallying the forces needed for such a complicated quest. Until now. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard Didier Coulot, the 2019 physics laureate, who was recognized for the discovery of the exoplanet 51 Pegasi B in 1995. He was awarded the prize together with his doctoral advisor, Michel Mayor, and the Canadian cosmologist, James Peebles. Killo is the Jacksonian Professor of Natural Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. He recently left his professorship at the University of Geneva to start the new Centre for the Origin and Prevalence of Life at ETH Zurich, a place where scientists from different disciplines will band together to solve the mystery of extraterrestrial life. I had the privilege to teach astrophysics to uh, famous chemist Nobel laureates. And I had teaching from chemistry Nobel laureates teaching me about chemistry. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Seit Stiftung. Didier Coulot speaks about looking for life in space and what it would mean for our perception of life here on Earth. But first, he reflects on being plucked from the Nobel limelight into the stillness of lockdown during the pandemic. The amount of requests I got was just just amazing. And um, I was way too easy on that. I, I tend to say yes to too many. And then... I realized that my year was kind of filled with meetings and, and trouble. And then, and then the pandemic struck. And, um, well, I think it saved my life. And practically, I'm, I'm a, I should not say that because people are dying with pandemics. So and that's not really a nice thing to say. But practically, I canceled everything. And I realized that I was crazy accepting all this. So I, I used this time to really... Um, um, to think about how I should really use this, um, this amazing award. And um, you know what? I, <laughs> it's funny. I, I thought about Newton, that escape in his village during... Uh, it must have been the plague, I think. And he wrote a book. Uh, well, I, I didn't do that. I didn't write a book. But, but I thought a lot on what to do with uh, uh, my award. And actually, it bear a lot of fruits. I and mean, we can talk about that later. Um, but the practicality is I realized that it's not a big deal to say no. And I kept along that way. And I decided I would be way more careful right now in the future about how much I could accept. And I set a limit of how many travel I would do and where I would go. And when that's it, that's it. And, and it's amazing because some of the people did not realize this. They say, oh, but you have plenty of time. I say, yeah, technically I do. But... I'd like to keep my diary open because I like to have time for myself to think and to do things. So that's really what happened. So in a way, that was a piece of luck for me. Well, well, for sure. And indeed, what an interesting moment to be speaking to you because it was just announced last week that uh, you are making this dramatic move. (laughs) (laughs) No, come on. It's... (laughs) 
Dramatic. <laughs> it's dramatic in Swiss terms because you're moving from French Switzerland to, to German-speaking Switzerland. Yeah, it's a massive move. I crossed the river called the Sarine, and Sarine is the border between the French-speaking part and the German-speaking part. That's a massive move. <laughs> it's just 200 kilometers away. <laughs> yeah, but in the context of Switzerland, you're moving from one tradition to another, from one, yeah, from one nation to another almost. I mean, it's one nation, but they are different. Yeah, well, I think this movie is exactly the, the productions of, of that time I've been using because I really reflect on what I was doing and I, I realised I was doing something in the last 20 years and that was very related to the award I got. And there is no uh, a new directions that is building up on the result we've been doing, which is asking the question of life in the universe. And, uh, and then I realised that if I really want to do something here, I should maybe change uh, the way I operate and, and my work Instead of doing my usual program, I should maybe redirect uh, my activity to become more someone which is giving more to the other than taking in a way that to do my own sciences. And I can do that because I've been already working on that field since a couple of years and engaging with these different communities. I feel I'm back like a student when I'm talking to people that know chemistries and earth sciences. And I realized I have so much to learn. So I love this idea that using this award, I am in a position to open a new chapter of my research and changing a little bit what I'm doing. I'm not completely drastically changing, but changing a little bit. And when you realize that, you really want to build up on that. So I have engaged with all my institutions and telling them, look, um, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. Cambridge Respond was amazing because they, they told me we're with you, we want to do that with you and so on. Um, it was more difficult to get that at Geneva University just maybe because of the scale and what I was doing because I was doing something quite specific there and it was really moving in a new directions. But I thought I would also try to do that in the kind of a country level. And if I cannot do that in Geneva, well, what about doing that in other institutions? And it ha I happens to talk with uh, my colleagues from ATH. ATH has the breath, has the capability to do something of that scale. And they were looking for something of that kind uh, from the inside already, so without waiting for me. I mean, they, con they were considering that kind of idea of joining different disciplines to work on a big project. Uh, that's why I came to do this, this change. Didier Coulot was a doctoral student and only 29 years old when he played a central role in discovering 51 Pegasi b, a giant hot gas planet similar to Jupiter, closely orbiting a star in the Pegasus constellation, 50 light years from Earth. Coulot and his mentor, Michel Mayor, detected it by using custom-made instruments, and their discovery was a breakthrough in the research of exoplanets, the planets outside of our own solar system. Since then, more than 4,000 exoplanets have been found in our galaxy, and Didier Coulot is eager to take planetary research to the next level. So you're the director of the Centre for the Origin and Prevalence of Life at ETH Zurich. Yeah, I will have to set it up. <laughs> so at the moment, you're the director of an idea. I am the director of a concept right now. <laughs> well... Um, that's lovely because um, it's all to be created. Yeah, well, I, it's not completely out of the blue because I'm working on that topic at the international level through a massive collaboration which has been triggered by the Simons Foundation. Simons Foundation in US, in New York, decided to move into this direction for called Origin of Life. 
they assemble what I call a golden team of 26 PIs around the world trying to work on different aspects of it. I'm one of them. It was through a competition a couple of years ago. And through that, I'm, I'm used, I'm exposed to that kind of topic already. And in Cambridge, people were doing that as well. I've been working with some of my colleagues from the um, um, chemistry, LMB lab, and earth science right now. And we all decided to work together on that. So that was something that was ongoing already. And then moving that to ATH would not be so difficult because I know what it looks like. I know the challenges, which is essentially to make sure people understand each other. It's not about people being good. They're all excellent. The question is when you put together in the same room a chemist, which is talking about chemistry, and an astrophysicist talking about astrophysics, it's really like uh, crossing the border of the, of the French part of Switzerland to the German part of Switzerland. So that's really, really, this is really the, the culture shock. And what I've been exposed and doing so far, so this is where I believe I can be helpful. Yes, those interdisciplinary boundaries that are hard to cross. I mean, there are examples from other fields, for instance, consciousness, where yes. many have come together. And it's, it's proved very hard to get people speaking the same language. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. This comes from, from the fact science is just amazing. And if you want to be on the top of your field, you have to be specialised. And that, that is fine. And there's nothing we can go against that. But the fact you get specialised doesn't mean you should be blind. And I think that requires this kind of spirit that you can be specialised and become expert about something and accept that you may not be expert about other topics, but got interested and that's a level of interest you have to rise a little bit because you don't need very much actually to expose yourself to be slightly out of your comfort zone in a place where nobody has really been exposed. And you realize that you don't need to be, I mean, to be that clever in a way about your ideas to make breakthrough because no one has been there. So there's everything to do. So that's the interesting bit is you realize that between boundaries, the boundaries are not close to each other. There are gaps between them. And these gaps are exploratory places. And that's what I've been trying to work on. And you do a little bit, you just do an experiment for six months and then you can end up uh, in nature for, for that because, because you realize that it was so obvious. Nobody thought about that because nobody had the idea of that because they were not exposed to this mixed thing. So that's a bit the challenge here. We're trying to, to move in these directions. And I'm pretty sure, similarly to the early days of Exoplanet, where there were essentially everything to be discovered. And it was pretty easy to do to, to front page of media. So, but, and, and I remember my colleagues in physics, they were complaining. It was a too easy topic. <laughs> to be published in Nature. And they were right, but it was easy because nobody had done it before. And that's the idea. So you can, you can dwell in great detail into a field and then you need the hard work and you, you work on the digits, you work and you assemble the stuff, which is fine because there are really breakthrough to be done at any direction, in any direction. But you could also, let's say, be more an explorer and go in place where you don't understand very much, but enough to discover something amazing that nobody had thought about it. And that's a bit the idea here. We're trying to work together and there is a, a very strong energy, a positive energy that you capture essentially on the young generation because they love that. I mean, for them, when you enter into a field which has so much established, it's very difficult for them to rise to the top and be visible. When there is a field which is nothing really has been done practically, um, it's very easy for them to do things very cleverly um, and to, ex to expose themselves to the very top and to make your own way. So they love it. They love the topic. 
And that's, in a way, I'm, I'm doing that for the young generation because I want to make sure that they have the possibilities. Somebody coming and say, I want to work between two disciplines, they could do it. And that's really breaking all these boundaries. Uh, Does it surprise you that you are now working on the origin of life? I mean, when you began looking for exoplanets, was that in the back of your mind? Well, yes and no. Well, I have to tell you an anecdote here. When we made the discovery with Michel of the first planet, it was almost um, 25 years, a bit more than 25 years ago, we were aware that the planet was very awkward and that would be a big challenge for the theory. We saw that as a challenging um, new element to understand the formation of the planet. But we completely overlooked another aspect. Is The first question we got was not about, oh, what about the formation of the solar system? I mean, that comes much later on. And it's really an expert discussions and to, to understand why do you get this massive giant planet next to the stars? The only question we get first is, what about life on that planet? And we thought that was completely ridiculous because it's obvious there were no life on that planet. But actually what is behind is when you start talking about other planet, in, this is all the sci-fi stuff. And you think about other world, you think other civilization, you think other life and all that and all and all and on, like going to Mars and people, of course, it's in, Mars is a very fascinating planet to study in terms of geophysics. But the only thing people care about is life on Mars. And they were right. It's great. It's a great stuff. So life is everywhere. So from the beginning, we're talking about life in this field. But I think we're talking rubbish because we don't know what we're talking about. And I realized it took me a long time. I mean, we had this idea, oh, let's go for the ozone and the oxygen stuff. And it's just ridiculous. Right? We know it's ridiculous to do that. We can do that, but it has to be made in a, more, in a very more comprehensive way. So I realized by the time that if I really want to be serious on that topic, which I think is fascinating, I need to, to lower down and the expectations and to, to rework from the scratch. And that happened when I moved to Cambridge. But essentially, my move there to Cambridge was to expose myself to a new culture and to a bit more open field of perspective. I was not exposed enough in Switzerland. It's a smaller country, small universities. You, you don't have this kind of a, a breath of exposure you can get in a university like Cambridge, where by tradition as well, have all these college systems and people talking and you have these diversities of opinions. So I, I start realizing that this idea was not crazy. We could do something, but it's not the way I thought we were doing. And that, I started gradually to move into this direction. So if you want, the idea was already embedded into the first discoveries, but I was not able to value it in the right way and to re make it flourish. So now I'm trying to develop that idea on a very realistic prospect as a real scientific prospect here. Look, from my perspective, there is only three big questions you can ask. And then all the other, they follow these three big questions. The first one is the origin and nature of the universe, the matter, everything related to that. The second one is origin and the nature of life in a global way. And the third one is origin and nature of the consciousness. When you fix these three problems, I think you fix the three biggest questions that is related to religion, mythology, anything you can think about us. And by tackling the life, you, you're one of them. Who do you need to bring together to make this centre work? 
Well, it's essentially all the aspects of the life and life origin. So you can see life on, on the two extremes element. First one, you have to bring the stuff and really seeing the life as we know it, and then to study it in great detail. So you're dealing here with essentially the biochemistry, chemistry, and then biology, and the, the early development of life. That's, that's the life as we know it, and you can study it. And we need this element because it, at some point, this is the easy life to find, is the one we know. Well, of course, you need to look at all the other locations uh, where life can happen, and that is astronomy, essentially, is all the many planets you have. So you need to bring the astronomy there. Well, astronomy by itself doesn't give you the real answer, because life is related to the to the structure as with the planet you're dealing with. So it's part of the life of the planet. You know, you can see the planet alive in a way, because there's interaction of the planet cycling, natural cycling you have and also the life impact on the planet and it goes both ways so you need to understand the planet and planetology so that's why earth science is critical because we can study our own planet in great detail we can study mars we can study the planet in the solar system so this is all the scales that you bring together and you should understand each other in a way that you can use the knowledge of one to be useful to target the science of the other one so it goes from 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 astrophysics and all the way down to geophysics and atmospheric physics and then planetology and chemistry, early chemistry of life, uh, molecular chemistries and biology. And as all these disconnections, and in the past what happened, people used to connect only the two extremes, what's, what's called astrobiology, when you bring the, the biology and you push it astro. So in a way you take a living stuff and you... You start to cook it or you put it into acid and you say, oh, uh, does it survive in space? So you do extreme experiments. So you look for the boundary condition for life, but it doesn't tell you anything about the origin of life, unfortunately, because for the last 50 years, not much progress has been done on, on that. That's why you need this link. And that's kind of a long bridge you have to build up. Uh, it's long agduk. <laughs> we bring all this together. And that's a culture aspect. And to do that, and that's what the Simons Foundation have been helping us quite a lot. We organize ourselves in a way we try to understand each other. And I remember the first meeting. That was embarrassing because I remember this talk from, uh, from this chemist and, and some of them Nobel Prize laureate. I did not understand the world, what they were sowing, not even what they were trying to do. It was absolutely garbage for me. And because I don't have any, any background in molecular biology and I could not understand even the diagram, what they were told. And we realized this and we started to just teach ourselves and say, okay, let's try to go back and have what's called one-on-one -on -one sessions. In a way, let's teach to ourselves. So I had the privilege to teach astrophysics to uh, famous chemist Nobel laureates. And I had teaching from chemistry Nobel laureates teaching me about chemistry. So we have this kind of very funny situation where we were trying to downscale the ambitions uh, at the teaching level in a way that we would be able to understand, not doing what they're doing, but at least understand what they were doing. And that is essential for the progress. And that's the first challenge that we're going to fix with this kind of center. That's why co-location is critical, community push is critical, and also a large collaboration network is critical. Your center is called Origin and Prevalence of Life. So there are two questions there. There's the search for its existence and then where it came from. Well, okay, let's be clarify the stuff. The center has no naming yet. This is the initiative. And the purpose of the initiative is to make sure we capture different elements. First, you have to understand the origin of life in a global way, in the universe. But then it's not enough to make life. I mean, how could you sustain life? And that's really what, what is the idea here, because life has an impact on the planet. And how could you address these questions 
of the sustainability of life. And by, by looking at life under the stars, under the planet, you answer both. You answer the likelihood for the life to exist. No, would you be able to detect that there has been life and life uh, disappear? Yes, I guess. If there is a, a massive nuclear war on a planet, and it's not an unlikely scenario when you just count how many uh, nuclear weaponry we have to self-destroy ourselves. So I think that would be visible because that would stay quite long. So you should be able to see something that maybe there has been something here happening. So all this is part of this open-minded approach that we should be able to deal with. So the idea is we, we essentially dealing with life in the universe as a global problem is, is that an universal process everywhere? Is life the same everywhere? And if you have life, what does it mean? Does it mean you, it will stay forever or it will be just a brief moment and disappear? And, and this is all about it. And we know nothing about that. We only know our own case and we are like a big of a butterfly. I mean, we, we, we get the feeling we, um, we have an infinite time in front of us, but we're just a butterfly. <laughs> yes, it's a very... It's a very grounding thought um, when you <laughs> when you stop and consider the age and magnitude of the exactly. universe to the best of your ability, yes. So I suppose that all this general public interest in life elsewhere, that people have expected some definitive sign. For instance, with SETI, where they, there should be a signal coming that tells you there's somebody out there, something out there. Yeah. But it's not going to look like that, is it? The signature of life as it appears, if it appears, will be very different and based around probability and, and uncertainty. Yeah, there is different way to see that. The, the most obvious way is we, we on Mars right now and tomorrow we're going to bring stuff on Mars. Well, when we're going to have that stuff on Earth, when we open the stone and we break apart, maybe we're going to see animal moving around. So that would be life. That will be clear. There will be no decision about that. Or there will be a direct element of what we're going to bring on Mars that is very strong enough. And we just see it. We just see life. So that would be, to me, a direct evidence that there is life outside this planet. It doesn't mean the life is different. It may be the same that has been exported or life born on Mars and went to Earth. But that's the only way to find a direct evidence. Or you have to talk like SETI. So you really detect something obvious and it could be any signal and you're really talking with the civilization here. Now, if you stay away from that, that would be a bit more complicated in a way because you will have to just detect sign of life. Well, if you assume that you want to detect something very similar to what we have on Earth, you can essentially try to look for an exact copy of Earth. So we will be detecting Earth-like planet, Earth-twin planet, in a way, very similar. That's pretty clear. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't do that. We will study these planets. We will get, sooner or later, we'll get something from the atmosphere. But I think we're going to be very surprised uh, what we're going to get, because there may be more diversity in the atmosphere of that kind of planet that we think. And if we find an atmosphere which is strictly similar to our own, we may find out that it's very likely there has been a similar development of life. That would be a fascinating outcome. But I doubt it will be so easy than that. There will be more subtle element. We will debate what it means in terms of uh, atmosphere impact, because atmosphere has to be considered in a global manner and, and with the impact of the planet. So my hope is we will do that with many different planets. And technically, we are an infinite number of planets we can do. Of course, they will be not easy because some of them will be far in the galaxies, but you could do that for a million of planets. 
So it's a bit like this, you know, this um, this painting when you use dots, tiny dots. You know, this dot painting uh, that we just do bit a bit. So every every planet, every information will be a dot with a given color. So each of them will not tell you anything really specific. They will give you some hint about what is the planet about. But my hope is when we have a lot of dots on the paintings and you will just do some step back and look at the global painting, then you will see the, the grand picture. That is the statistical element. So this is usually the deal we're having with my friend chemist and biochemist. They have to deal with the origin of life on Earth because they can do it. No reason why they should not tomorrow being able to build life in the lab. And we should be able to test some part of it on Mars because I don't see why we should not understand well enough the geophysical condition on Mars, at least at a time that corresponds to the first billion year on Earth. And that will be just a fascinating. I hope we'll go on Venus and drill into Venus because maybe there's still life into the ground of Venus. We'll go to Titan, Europa, we'll go to Enceladus. So there's plenty of fascinating place when we can do and really bring the stuff back and study it. For astrophysic perspective, we'll bring the statistics element. We'll bring the diversity perspective. We'll try to get the scenery, the grand picture, this kind of uh, dot paintings I was mentioning. And that's, to me, what we should be adding. So it's really a heading, the going. It's going to take a long time to get the whole picture. But to do that, you don't break the law of physics. So sooner or later, it's going to happen. Like 1,000 years ago, when people were dreaming maybe flying like a bird. So we do that right now, and we fly like a bird over the, um, the Earth. So we will, do, we will be doing picture imaging with gigantic telescopes uh, in space of planet uh, orbiting other stars. And this planet, we right now detecting them. So right now we're detecting them, and tomorrow a, a new generation of scientists will do way more than what we're doing right now. But that's, that's how I see the field. And because science takes time, and because you need to build up the knowledge, I think I don't see why we shouldn't starting right now. And uh, we do start with what we can and uh, we'll make some progress and it will direct the next stage and, and so on and so on. This is what science is about. Mm. There's so much emphasis placed on trying to help everybody understand the scientific method and how important it is that people understand how science progresses. And it seems to me that this presents a wonderful opportunity to teach that method because you have this worldwide huge interest in the question you're asking yes and the expectation has been that there will be a definitive answer but in fact it's going to be a case of dealing with probably unless the definitive answer suddenly appears dealing with all this statistical processing and so if you can engage the public in that quest and that story it is a, a beautiful teaching tool you have at your hands I, I fully agree with that. And that's my message to all the journalists and media I'm talking about. Usually they, they contacted me when there is a big stuff coming. And I keep telling them, yeah, oh, that's nice. And I had a lot of journalists uh, following the announcement that will be the center. I say, well, you know, we're just announcing the center right now. But I really hope you will come back to me in three months or every six months and, and tell me you know, anything new. Because I want you to track down the story, it's, and I use this comparison with uh, when you see this, uh, these people sailing over the globe with, uh, I mean, this, this crazy sailing solo and they just go over the globe and they're racing and it takes weeks to do that. I took this example. I think it's nice to see the departure because it's fun. You see where well there. It's nice to see the arrival, but the real fun, the real show is to see the race what's going on along the way, because a lot of stuff is happening along the way. And that's what is relevant here. So I'm trying to teach the media and the journalists 
about this. Stop telling only the beginning and the end. Spend time to tell the story because that is what is relevant here. It's like when you see a race and, and it works, but it's slow. So it's just changing the way the media communicate on the science. The media should keep a continuous communications and get engaged with the, with the scientists. And, and the idea that scientists are not willing to be engaged by the media is just wrong. I mean, most of the scientists are very happy. Not everyone can do it, but that should be accepted. But there is a significant amount, especially the young generation, that's much more up to speeds of the way to present what they're doing. They're much more, anyway, uh, they have this kind of feeling. There's much more in the world of media that maybe some older generations uh, 50 years ago. So it's very easy to do that with them. And I, I don't see why we shouldn't do it. So that's why I'm tweeting. It's just to, I decided to tweet uh, not to to tell what is my food every day, but to try to engage with the community and to just tell the story. And I'm hoping to have as much as, as possible um, some journalists and some media people uh, with me. And in the center, we are specifically looking for some specific media to be with us. And they will be keep, keep in the loop. They will receive information before it's being public. They will be asked not to talk about it, but they can think about it. And at the time it comes out, they have something ready. So I'm really willing to play that because I think science needs to be explained and, and we should do way more on that because science is everywhere. And I think it's kind of disconnections between the society and science are uh, um, very dangerous for, for, for the futures of our society. So I'm trying to do my bit. <laughs> If we were to discover that there is definitely life elsewhere, how do you think that would change humanity's view of itself? Well, that would be an interesting experience. <laughs> um, my view on that is um, there is no immediate reactions to the scientific discoveries into the society. It takes a long time to digest it. Um, it does at some point, and uh, and and the timescale may depend on the nature of the discovery. So I would not expect anything directly. I don't think that uh, people that would believe about God would change their mind. I don't think that people that um, believe we should grow our nuclear weaponry would change their mind, and all this will not change in the immediate. But it will open mind, it will open the mind of maybe some people writing stories, it will it will write the mind of debates and and all this level of discussions into the society at large is going to impact on the society. I don't know how far it is true, but it's quite often said that the main society impact of the um, Newton discoveries of the law of the universe is to allow the idea that there is no reason why there must be law of gods. And then this is one of the foundations of the American Revolution, the French Revolutions. There is no reason to believe that. And it's quite often referred as the kickstart based on the fact there are law, which is in the nature. So the law of the nature exists and prevails. So for that reason, there is no reason why someone like a king uh, would inherit of the power of death on everybody because that would be against the law of the nature. And, and it's quite often used as an example that a discovery which has nothing to do with the society 
has changed the way to see us because it just changed the perspective on nature. So I do think that eventually, if you start finding there's a lot of life everywhere, or that we realize that life on Earth comes from Mars, or there's another kind of life on Mars, it will diffuse into the society and there will be something out of that. What exactly, I don't know. It's impossible to know because it's, it's part of the, of the thinking of the future of the society. But it will because you have a new knowledge and you build a new, you establish a new perspective on the reality and you project your, your picture of the reality into something and this something will have changed. And that's it. There is so much more one could talk about with this amazing, fascinating topic. But it's been a joy to be with you on this you know, new phase of exploration. It was as if, as if looking for exoplanets wasn't exploration enough. Now you have all these new territories. <laughs> you know, it's like a drug. When, when you take one, it's difficult not to take the other. So you're a bit addicted about that kind of stuff. <laughs> I can well see why. I think you're spreading your addiction. I'm getting hooked too here. <laughs> Good. That was a purpose. I'm happy. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yilje, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. In season three, we welcome guests from all six prize categories. Chemistry laureate Joachim Frank, Economic Sciences laureate Paul Milgram, Peace laureate Lema Bowie, Medicine laureate Elizabeth Blackburn, Literature laureate Wale Soyinka, and the guest we just heard, Physics laureate Didier Coulot. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to listen to another enthusiastic science communicator, check out the episode with Medicine Laureate Elizabeth Blackburn. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.